Support for this episode of Science Moab comes from the Colorado Plateau Foundation, a native-led philanthropic institution supporting native-led organizations, protecting water, sacred places, and endangered landscapes, preserving native languages, and uplifting sustainable community-based agriculture. Since 2012, the Colorado Plateau Foundation has awarded $2.8 million to over 100 native-led initiatives across the Colorado Plateau. More information is available at coloradoplateaufoundation.org. This is Science Moab, a show exploring the science happening in Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm your host, Christina Young, and today we're speaking to two researchers who study the relationship between human activity and the environment. Specifically, they look at how human activities like mining and agriculture impact tribal communities, non-native communities, and the ecology of this region. I'm Jonathan Credo. I'm an MD-PhD student at the University of Arizona College of Medicine. My name is Amy Chandos. I am a senior research technician at Northern Arizona University. I'm incredibly interested and curious to see how human interactions interacts with the environment and how those interactions can have some type of impact on either the environment or back on humans themselves. More specifically, kind of the, the health implications that come from it, given my, my MD-PhD kind of leanings. My interest comes from a little bit more of an ecological perspective. I got really interested in native fish conservation when I was at UC Davis, and I came to NAU and started working in a ecotoxicology lab, and I was really interested in how the fish of this region were being affected by all the contaminants and mining, all that stuff. I think most of the contaminants, they're primarily anthropogenic or human cause and origin. Certainly the Colorado River and even in Southern Utah, there's a lot of agriculture. So any type of runoff coming from farms or livestock uh, feedlots, those invariably make their way in one way or another to the Colorado River. And I guess I would, I would emphasize and argue that that's especially with our United States EPA and state regulations, I think a lot of the cases, these aren't necessarily intentional or maliciously caused. The state of technology and how it is, we were just only recently um, understanding on how really organic chemicals make their way through the groundwater systems and through soils and ultimately wind their way up into the, the Colorado River. Another significant source is the long history of heavy metal mining in the Southwest. So certainly the Navajo Nation is infamous really for its long history of uranium mining. But even before uranium mining really picked up in 1942, this whole region had been mined for things like vanadium and molybdenum and other precious heavy metals that were used for other applications. You know, really beyond just the anthropogenic in in input there's also a large amount of just natural weathering of rock. So for anyone who's been to Grand Canyon, you're kind of in awe of the majesty of how the powerful sculpting of water. But of course, all of those different geologic layers have their own elements and constituents. So certainly human activity probably has accelerated the contamination, I would say, but there was some basal or background level of contamination that existed in this region prior to human uh, interaction. 
I think ammonium and like the nitrogen cycle, the phosphorus cycle, I think that's kind of the prototypic idea of how agriculture impacts the water table. But certainly now agrochemicals and organic pollutants and even inorganic pollutants are increasingly becoming a concern. And I think that shift that happened really because in the 60s and 70s, when essentially environmentalism was first established, our quantitative methods were really good at assessing out fertilizers and nitrogenous products and things like that. Uh, and it's, again, only recently in the past three, four years, for example, the U.S. EPA has increased its campaign to quantitate these perfluoral alkyl substances and perfluoral octanoic acid substances. So these are things like Teflon and things that you might find as stabilizer products for agriculture. Again, like I said, within the past decade, has science really caught up for our ability to detect it at quantifiable levels in the environment? But we've used these things for decades at this point. There's more sources of contaminants than just the, the traditional eutrophic things like fertilizers, ammonia, things like that. Super interesting. I hadn't heard of that or thought about that and concerning. <laughs> I kind of want to walk up the, the ecological chain starting and thinking about the ecosystem and the fish and, you know, other things that, that live in the water up to humans and thinking about kind of how this variety of, of contaminants that are existing in the groundwater and then also the riverways within the region, kind of what, what their impacts are and start with Amy and then work, work up to the people mm -hmm. side of things. I think that there is a significant dearth of research surrounding how these are affecting the fish because science hasn't looked at that yet. That's why I'm really interested in it as uh, fish form part of the base of an ecosystem. They eat, they eat the bugs and they provide food for lots of other animals. And so if the aquatic system is healthy and the fish aren't able to survive, that's going to have lots of impacts up the ecological food chain. So moving beyond the, the fish, more specific examples that we can see both for animal and also human impact is right at the bend of the Colorado River near Lake Mead outside of Henderson, Nevada, Las Vegas. So maybe going back to the 50s and 60s, actually even longer, there's a large amount of perchlorate production that was used there. And perchlorate is this very simple molecule, ClO4, so comprised of only five uh, elements. And it's used fairly, again, ubiquitously in any type of explosive product. So rocketry, ammunition, um, all the way to domestic things such as airbags. Perchlorate had just this decades long contamination of the Colorado River. And we've only done very preliminary studies and the study that we got funded for the, through the Colorado Plateau Foundation was going to allow us to look at it more in depth as well. But the initial studies show that perchlorate has a wide range of developmental and behavioral impact on at least fish models. That was replicated and observed in laboratory-based fish. So part of the study Amy and I got funded for, we wanted to see if that was more broadly applicable for fish that exist in the Colorado River. If we step up from fish and lower trophic level animals to humans, there's certainly a, a large scope of contaminants that exist in this region 
But again, it's all predicated on what is it, how much, and how long have you been exposed? Can you kind of break down for me then, you know, I think with the aquatic system and the ecosystem, it sounds like there's just been runoff and then potentially mining along riverways that are introducing, introducing things into the ecosystem. And then you mentioned, you know, that rural communities and specifically people living on the Navajo Nation have ways of exposure um, that are potentially unique and that they can be in water and air. But can you, can you break that down a little bit more? Like how, how are some of these pathways of exposure really happening and how do they, how are they, how do they differ between either environments or groups of people? here on the plateau? So in terms of exposure, the most simplest way, at least I think of it, is people are either being exposed through ingestion, so things that they eat, be it food, things they drink, such as water, or inhalation. And certainly the American Southwest is no stranger to large dust storms, so that certainly poses a uh, significant concern. Once we know that the exposure pathways in which people are being exposed, we need to understand where are their sources coming from. And I think that's what we've been kind of hinting on and dancing around uh, in this interview thus far. Mining can contribute to both of those pathways because as you dig into the earth, you have the potential to expose underground waterways and contaminate the groundwater system, or even you know spilling into surface water. So for example, just outside of Moab was a very large uranium tailings pile. There had been research that showed that some of that uranium contamination was making its way into the Colorado River. Or more recently, of course, the Gold King mine spill in 2015, uh, where 3.8 tons of wood mine waste broke at a retention dam and made its way into the Animus and ultimately the Colorado River. As for inhalation exposure, again, if you're digging it in a dusty environment, you're going to have to move and put that dirt that you displaced somewhere. And while that dirt might not have, you know, resources that you're after, uh, it can certainly be enriched in other contaminants. Again, think arsenic, think manganese. So if you've brought those up from the depths and brought it to the surface, you're now providing a way for this to be mobilized into the atmosphere and into the environment for people to become exposed. It's a lot of processes, and I'd mentioned at the start, while all of these processes occur in a natural rhythm, human interaction certainly has catalyzed and sped up the ways in which humans can get exposed to these contaminants. In thinking about these different exposures and different ecosystems, once these things enter into the system, how long can their effects be felt? I think it depends on what specific chemical element you're talking about, but a lot of the hydrophilic contaminants can be pretty transient as long as the source goes away. Yeah, so so to expand on that, I think the effects are much longer than I I think a lot of people kind of realize. And again, we can look at the Gold King Mine Spill as as an excellent example. Right after, within, what, 24 hours of the Mine Spill happening, you know, there's that rather infamous photo of the, the river being dyed gold, essentially. Shortly after, what, within a week, definitely within a month, the water went back to roughly the color people had expected. If you just look at that system and you have a relatively narrow scope, 
water contaminants tend to cycle out that system fairly quickly uh, unless they're bound or retained somewhere. So if you look at some of the reports from the Gold King mine spill, and even before the Gold King mine spill reports from like the United States Geological Survey or the Scripps Institute, the hypothesis, the governing thought right now is that any type of contaminants introduced are likely accumulating really more in reservoirs. So Lake Powell, Lake Mead, and slowly, almost like a drip, I guess a drip coffee, you know, that's being introduced downstream kind of continuously to the point where they can travel no further. That can be scary for whatever community is downriver of that. You know, you've mentioned a few places that these kind of contaminants are affecting or a few groups of people. And I was wondering if you could explain if, if we see distributions of contaminants affecting specific areas or specific groups of people disproportionately around the plateau. The short answer, we're not sure. <laughs> I say we're not sure really because a lot of the communities that exist and are around the plateau and that come into contact with the water are all minorities or tribal communities. And for a variety of different reasons, there's not the best record keeping associated with contamination in these communities. If you look at it as a whole, yes, we certainly see a higher incidence of certain cancers and certain chronic health diseases in the tribal people on the Colorado Plateau. But, and this is, a, this is a common problem with contamination science, is this because of the increased toxic environment that they live in, or is this because of other health disparities, such as nutritional and lower access to water, science, education, things like that? It's hard to suss those variables out. I think these problems exist to peg it solely due to contamination, that's a lot harder to do. I would say, I think these communities are starting to come around and recognize that the fact that this is an unknown should not be an excuse for us not to study it, or that the fact that these studies are difficult to do should not be a reason to, again, not look into it. It's this dance that I think science plays with these communities and and both players play with industry and regulators, because the precedent set in the United States is that the, the burden of proof falls upon the community and science to prove that this is wrong or that there is a problem. These studies can be so protracted because you really want to get as much information as as strong as evidence as possible to really demonstrate like there's a clear link here. And I think that can be difficult for communities to appreciate and you know, coming from the Navajo Nation myself, it's, it's really heartbreaking to, you know, a study comes out, helps, you know, works in the, the community for, you know, three years, five years, but nothing might really come of that for another 10 years. It's, again, it's really heartbreaking and it, it's sad to see that it's such a long evolution for any change to, to occur. Another point to bring up here is sometimes scientists have difficulty working with the tribes and minority groups. There can be a lot of distrust because scientists in the past haven't always operated with the best interests of these people in mind. And they definitely have not always been culturally sensitive. And so that has definitely 
not help the progression of data, data gathering and information dissemination among these groups as well. Yeah, that's an important point. Thanks for breaking that down. And I, I'm curious then to follow up with, you know, Jonathan described how, how long it can sometimes take to kind of address these things. And so for, for both of, of your areas, what are things that can start to address these environmental exposures on the plateau? One message that, again, has been fairly successful and positive for my work I've done with tribal nations is, you know, don't, don't get discouraged. And if the scientists have been able to get approval, uh, it's a long process to get approval to work with tribes and with these rural communities. So if they're at that point that they have all their approvals and they're doing science in the, the vicinity, they're more than happy to talk with the community. In fact, that's what they would love to do. Because I think most scientists and most groups I know that work on the plateau in these communities, they understand that we are truly just visitors for this area. And without the community buy-in, without the community bolstering our science, it's just going to rot away in a publication or a library or on someone's shelf. The, The easiest access for community members is, again, just reach out and understand what's going on, what's at stake. But on the other side of that coin, if the community becomes educated and involved, and I've had quite a bit of success on this front, then they can make their voices known. And I've worked with quite a few state representatives and state senators to work on various different legislations throughout the years. And we've passed two of them. And those legislations are all directed towards bringing more resources and understanding really the plight that exists out in these communities. The community helping the scientists can help us develop kind of mitigation plans and I guess like ecosystem management plans and range management plans that help preserve this very fragile ecosystem and this important ecosystem. Once those government ports get filed, you know, those are really the some of the ammunition that's going to be used to inform you know, long-scale and large-scale reform and change. So Jonathan touched on the uh, changes in um, government and legislation that have helped the people become better able to deal with the contaminants they are exposed to. And its uh, legislation has also allowed for the cleanup of a lot of sources of contamination, including covering mines and mine tailings, trying to eliminate dust that comes off of those, as well as cleaning up environmental spills like the Gold King Mine and really focusing on where the contaminants are and trying to get them out of the ecosystem or figure out how to best contain them. Jonathan mentions Henderson, Nevada, perchlorate spill. That has also been something that reduce and hopefully eventually eliminate the perchlorate that is seeping into the Colorado River at that point. And with with the goal that all of these measures will be able to help the ecosystem, help the animals, and my favorite, help the fish to better survive and to hopefully even thrive in this new environment that 
is heavily influenced by people. Well, I can't thank you both enough for your time and for sharing your expertise. And I think you just raised so many things that hadn't thought about or know about. And, and I just really, I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for the invite. To learn more or listen to other Science Moab episodes, visit sciencemoab.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Science Moab is done in partnership with Utah State University Extension. Media is by Sophia Fisher. Newsletter is by Rhonda Cook. Our theme music is by Jeremy Spaulding. And the show is produced by Peggy Hodgkins, Christina Young, and KZMU. If you love Science Moab, let us know. Leave a rating on Spotify or a review on iTunes. And consider supporting Science Moab by donating to the podcast at sciencemoab.org. This programming is unique to Moab, Utah, and your support makes it possible.